0: This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. When you think about the scale that biology operates on, it's on the centimeter scale. So we we really have a very, very poor understanding of everything that's down there. As you move from the seafloor and into the water column, there are all kinds of life forms that are completely unknown to science and in Bari's time alone we've discovered over 200 animals that are completely novel. No one ever knew they existed.
1: I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you. And also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to KathySullivanExplorers.com. My guest today leads one of the premier and most innovative oceanographic institutions in the world, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, known, of course, as MBARI. Chris Skolin describes himself as an accidental director who never set out to be the CEO of anything. It's no big stretch to say he's also an accidental oceanographer. As a kid growing up in the American Midwest, his only exposure to the ocean was Jacques Cousteau's TV show. You'll hear how his dim view of the future, the boredom of lab work, and the advice of a mentor led him to connect his expertise in molecular biology to the challenge of better understanding our ocean, and how that led him to MBARI, which specializes in inventing new instruments and technologies for ocean exploration and discovery. So let's dive in. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Chris Skolin, who runs what I think is probably the most fascinating and fun oceanographic institution on the planet. I'm sure a few of my colleagues would take issue with that, but I'm I'm sticking by that viewpoint. Chris, you're out in Monterey Bay at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. I'll bet a lot of people know about the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Probably most people don't know there's this whole other entity that's kind of a sister, brother, cousin. So I mean, that's part of what I want to explore as we get into our conversation. But something I've never had a chance to explore with you is what was your pathway from childhood in the Midwest to you know, leading position in the world of not just oceanography, but advanced technology to unlock the secrets of the ocean? How'd this Midwestern farm boy get <laughs> lost at sea? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Kathy, that's a great question. And by the way, thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it. All of us actually at MBARI appreciate an opportunity. And I should say MBARI because I'll probably say that. That's, a, that's the acronym for Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. It's a mouthful. As
1: long as you make it pronounceable, it works. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so how did I come to be where I am? Well, I should start by saying I'm, I'm an accidental director. I, I never intended to be a CEO of anything, frankly. But as a kid growing up in the Midwest, I was really fascinated with the outdoors. I was fascinated with the ocean. And like a lot of people of my generation watching Jacques Cousteau on TV, I mean, it just seemed like such a far away place. And literally for me, it was far away. I didn't have an opportunity to visit the ocean when I I was a kid. And it wasn't until I was really in high school, I think, that I finally got there. Where exactly did you grow up? In St. Louis, St. Louis, Missouri.
1: City kid, farm kid. Tell me a bit of who was Chris Skolan as a very young child.
0: We lived just on the edge of the main city itself, so on the south side of of the city. A diverse community of people. Parents were kind of World War II vet generation types. My father served in the military. His father had served in World War I. So we had this long history of. Of uh, just of being there uh, as uh, immigrants from Europe, and um, and then really though uh, all of my family was for the most part focused on something that kept them essentially in place, you know, be a business or medicine or legal, whatever it might have been, and and I was always kind of fascinated by this idea of the ocean, and and I kind of stood out among them as kind of this crazy kid who had this idea and. And my, my uh, people would ask me, like, how are you ever going to make a living you know, <laughs> doing something with the ocean? Like, what, what is that? Like, what do you do? And I was like, honestly, I don't I don't really know. Yeah. Was
1: understanding the ocean what I mean, at that young age, I can imagine the ocean would be and Jacques Cousteau sort of this the general allure of great adventures or the curiosity of what they were finding or just kind of a travel bug. What was your chemistry and all that?
0: Well, I was really fascinated by this idea of exploration, discovery, you know, finding something that no one knew about, you know, a uh, treasure, of course, you know, there was the famous treasures found off Florida. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that's one thing. But um, but just being uh, in the water, under the water, I learned to scuba dive when I was 12 years old.
1: In Missouri.
0: <laughs> it, well, it's it's interesting. So... Of course, we had fish tanks. I was fascinated by uh, by all things aquatic. And a friend of mine and I learned that we could blow up balloons using the fish uh, aerator pump, put them in a T-shirt, and then go sit at the bottom of the pool holding a brick and breathe underwater.
1: <laughs> I don't think that qualifies as scuba diving. <laughs>
0: well, well, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. So when the uh, this was a public pool and when the lifeguards saw us sitting there, of course, they thought we were drowning. And they were very unhappy. And they said, this is not allowed. So, my my mother had to come pick me up and, you know, after they talked about it for a while, said, don't ever do that again. But I'll tell you what, we've learned there was actually a dive shop in town, believe it or not. St. Louis, Missouri had a dive shop. Wow. And we want you to get formally trained. And so that this, you're not going to do this crazy stuff anymore. You're going to use the real deal equipment. And I had to mow lawns. Earn the money to buy the gear. And of course, there was a Christmas or birthday occasionally and people go yeah. together. I got a mask and I, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> so um, after, after all of that, I did eventually get my scuba certification and I, I just was fascinated by it. And so eventually, it's a long story, but it, it took me to the University of California at Santa Barbara, where I just started studying aquatic uh, biology.
1: So, so let me let me pause you there a little bit. So, were you a studious kid, or tell me a bit more? I mean, you've got a PhD from MIT, I think, right? Not shabby. <laughs> not everyone can do that. So, I mean, what were you like school wise and sports wise? And and once you got your diving certificate at twelve, did you actually get to use it at all, or did you have to just bide your time until you got to Santa Barbara? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, okay, so you know, I wasn't great at sports. I, I liked being in the outdoors, hiking. you know i'm not a I'm not a gifted athlete, and it I just never fit there. even though I tried. I just was kind of just wasn't right for me. But I love this the idea for some reason, laboratory stuff kind of fascinated me, and I was also a big fan of of classic movies like Frankenstein or you know laboratory, yeah. you know, and science fiction and things like that. I just found that was just so cool, so fascinating.
1: Yeah, you wanted to be the mad scientist at that young age. <laughs> a little bit,
0: a little bit. And I would get out, we had the Encyclopedia Britannica that, you know, we, we bought and then you'd get like one volume every month as you paid it off, you know, for five yeah. years or whatever it took, you know, one of those deals. But um, but I was just fascinated with it and the whole idea of science. Um, And of course, I there were individuals in my family who were medical doctors and engineers and things like that, not directly in my family, but my, my extended relatives. And and so, I just found it kind of interesting. And so, really, I tried to figure out, was there a way where you could kind of do this kind of laboratory science technology thing, but but do it in an environment that was really going to be fun that you personally enjoyed? And that was this combination of mix that with ocean science. Which at the time I or ocean something I didn't know what the something was going to be. I had no idea, but I had I figured there has to be a way to bring those things together, and there there should be opportunity. Now in today's world, this is sort of commonplace, but in those days, you know, forty years ago, it was a little bit on the edge.
1: Yeah. So tell me about what diving. How were you able to further your diving interest after you got the certificate? Just. Going to the public pool and sitting on the bottom for longer <laughs> <No>. times. <laughs> I,
0: I did. I did go to the pool. You're, I did because I, you know, where else are you going to go? It's Missouri for God's sake, you know. <laughs> and so um, lakes, rivers, and believe it or not, caves. And oh. so I would go to some of flooded limestone mines. So Missouri is an ancient seabed. You know, it's got limestone all over the place, and the limestone was mined for cement, basically, to create cement. And other things. And so, and there are also naturally occurring caves all over the place. Some of the biggest in the world, in fact, are right there in Missouri.
1: So, we're not talking open pit mines. We're talking completely underground. Right. So, it's like this gigantic, empty volume carved out of the rock underground, and then it fills up with water, with groundwater.
0: Right. And with tunnels that have wow. no light above them. So you can imagine how my parents felt about me cave diving. This was not good. You know, <laughs> they, did, they this was like, no, we don't like this. And it, it, frankly, it's dangerous. And so after that, again, they encouraged me. They were like, look, if you're going to go scuba diving, we you, you got to get out of out of mines in, in Missouri. I mean, in rivers, Scary, dark mean, places, you're going to you're going to you're going to get hurt or worse. And so but once again, they uh, one one morning they I found this little brochure about um, the local dive shop was organizing a trip to Florida mm. and uh, we were going to Silver Springs. It was actually cave diving, but right. these were big springs uh, and there'd be some ocean stuff, too. And that was my first ever glimpse of that like ocean coral, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff, and it was cool.
1: The Florida caves are often open to the to the sky, though, so it's not the same as totally lost underground.
0: Right in a tight space where you yeah. you know with no light. Yeah, exactly. And it was just it was just wonderful. It was fascinating. And um, and but again, I kept thinking, like, how, how do you like how do you make a living at this? I mean, Jacques Cousteau did it. <laughs> I'm not a TV personality. I'm obviously never going to be that. You know, so what do you do? And uh, outside of the hospitality industry or something. So yeah, so that's that's eventually why I decided, well, I better go get formal training in, in, in oceanography to sort of find a, a path forward. And so interestingly I got to Santa Barbara, I never scuba dived once in California. <laughs> no, hung it up and uh...
1: it's it's a it's a huge big thing these days, as I'm sure you know well, uh the researching into which college, which university, and you know, if you're lots of people that get schlepped around by their parents to, you know, three, five, ten, some godly number of schools. That's certainly not how picking your college worked in my era. You're a bit younger than me. So in all of the universities in the United States, how did you find out, learn about and land on Santa Barbara? I mean, there's, you know, Washington, University of Washington, there's universities all along the coastline, you know, why not one other of them?
0: Well, once again, serendipity. You know, it's interesting. So, I I started college at a place called the University of Missouri at Columbia, sort of in the center of the hmm. state. It's where my parents had gone to school. It's where they actually met. So, of course, you know, it, the Apple does not fall far from the tree, right? Following so, in footsteps, right? And I was there, and uh, but yet, I really had this 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 bug in me. I was I was enrolled in a forestry and wildlife program. And so taking basic courses, you know, the chemistry, math, whatever, and standard things. And I was sitting one night, a cold, wintry night in the library, and I, I went to the librarian to ask, do you have any you know resources on colleges? I'm interested in marine science. And so in those days, you had microfiche. You might remember that, the little piece of film that was very tiny, you know, but then you would illuminate it, would project on a big screen. And uh, it was the catalog for UC Santa Barbara.
1: Which were only printed or microfilmed in those days.
0: <laughs> yeah, Not, there was there, there, was no, there was no such no thing online. as online. Yeah. There was no internet, right? No internet, no cell phone. And so this person, and I, I don't know who they are to this day. I just, they just said, you really ought to look here. If you want to do this, go to Santa Barbara. And I was just like, oh, oh that's interesting. I had no idea. <laughs> And of course, I learned that there was, you know, there are many other places, but I found so influential at that moment, you know, it just hit me. And of course, what the images were sunny California, you know, these islands off the beautiful coastline, coastline, palm trees. I thought, wow, like, you know, I've never really (laughs) lived in a place like that. That must be so cool. And so, I I applied much to the chagrin of, of my parents who thought it was a bad idea they really thought, and my father, the businessman, you know, uh, sort of a self-made guy, went to school on the GI Bill, you know, that sort of thing. He'd say, like, "What are you going to do?" I, I understand you want to do, this, but what are you going to do for a living? Because you got to, yeah. you got to get a job. And I'd be like, "Who's going to you know? hire
1: you?" Because you know oceans, yeah.
0: And, and I thought, you know what, aquaculture, Dad. It's, it's everything's going to go to aquaculture. <laughs> he was like, "Okay, so you're going to be a marine farmer." And I'm like, "I think so. I think so. You know, I think that there's, there's going to be a future in that." Of course. It's a multi-billion-dollar industry, but in those days, maybe not so. Anyway,
1: did you really think that, or were you just fobbing off your dad? No, I, I actually,
0: well, okay, truth be known, <laughs> I had to come up with an answer. <laughs> you can't tell your father, like, well, you know, hey, I, I know everything. I, I got no I,
1: clue. I'm, yeah, I
0: was, <laughs> I was, uh, I was honest in in my answer that uh, I, I wasn't sure, but I knew that there was something. And they, you know what, and this is a big part of it, I think sometimes you have to take a leap of faith. And I, I talk to kids, sometimes they come through and Bari or they'll write me a letter and say, doesn't everybody know everything there is to know about the ocean or how did you do it or, you know, this kind of thing. And just like our conversation, I say, you know, sometimes you got to follow your heart and you just, if it's something you want to do, give it a try. And there's always alternatives. So along those lines, I get to Santa Barbara. I'm just, it's, it's an amazing experience. I realized I was sort of like been plucked from you know, somewhere in the, you know, the Midwest where we dressed. I had very long hair, wore bell bottom jeans. <laughs> <laughs> We're dating ourselves here. <laughs> I show, yeah, I showed up at a place where everyone was really trim and had kind of this California hip look. And it was like, man, and they would say, Where are you from? <laughs>
1: <laughs> How did and you was, get from Mars? To and either? it was just like,
0: my gosh, what you know? Century are you living in here, man? Or decade, really? And so, you know, I realized, wow, okay, I, I'm I'm kind of in a whole different world here. But during my time there, I, I met some people who who had the same passion for ocean science as I did, or, or just the ocean in general, I should say, really, and technology. But uh, one guy in particular, whose father was a physician, said, you know, the future is in molecular biology, like DNA stuff. And he really kind of changed his course of study from the ocean, uh, oceanography type work and ocean biology to more biomedical diagnostics kind of thing. So not being a like a medical doctor, but being the person who makes tests for all kinds of things and whatnot. I had more of the industry part of it, biotech industry. That had a big influence on me because uh, of the just, it seemed like the job opportunity. So, we sat looking at Science Magazine, you know, one of the premier science journals here. Right. And we'd go to the back where all the job ads were. And there were just so many ads for looking for people who had skills in in laboratory skills for biomedical applications or other, you know, academic posts not that many in the ocean science and so he's like I'm going this way. What kind of
1: time frame are we talking about here? Molecular biology is seems to be everywhere all around us, biotech is all the rage, but you this is a time frame where you know that the nose of that camel is just peeking under the tent,
0: right? That's what exactly sort of time right? frame? Well, this would have been in the in the very early 1980s. Yeah. And so, you know, initially, when people began learning how to experiment with DNA, how do you, how do you transfer one piece of DNA from one bacteria or a virus to another? What could we do with that? You know, and it was used, mostly that technology was all about learning just how the cell works, how does stuff actually function, and there were applications in cancer biology or all sorts of things, and that was a technology that was people feared.
1: Yes cloning
0: cloning yeah. we we're going to create the super bug that was going to wipe everyone out so it was it was in very highly contained laboratories with extreme measures that we would take for like an Ebola virus kind of thing now these days and we realized uh, actually or they I should say that the scientific community realized that you know there's a lot we can do that's not it's not dangerous and in fact it could even be taught in schools at the college level it would be appropriate to have a course on it and so When I was at Santa Barbara, they offered a microbiology course where you would do basic, learn basic things like DNA extraction and how to clone genes and how to prove that you could see a expression of a gene and so forth. And it was the first time it had ever been done at UC Santa Barbara. And And it was really a rarefied group of schools that were trying it out on undergraduates. And so I had the privilege to be a part of that first class at Santa Barbara who got to do these things. And I learned how to grow bacteria on petri dishes and move genes around. And, and I just, it was fascinating. And, um, and that's when I, I, I started to think, you know, there's a real future in this and particularly for biotechnology. And so how could I, again, you know, I always had that bug of how can I bring it back to the ocean? And um and that's really where I essentially graduated from UC Santa Barbara looking for a way to do exactly that. You know, how am I going to bring these things together?
1: So this is interesting. You did not graduate with a degree that's labeled ocean sciences, if I that's understand correct. right. You went to the building block level, the fundamentals of biology, seeing in the back of science magazine how many job opportunities were cropping up in like you said, medicine and clinical and biotech, big arena, not yet seeing anything in ocean. So I'm curious how, whether you were aware at that moment that the science itself fascinated you, the lab techniques fascinated you, and it opened up a wide array of options, even even if you couldn't yet see ocean as one of those options it was a good toolkit to have for, and you could find your way forward. Is that kind of how it felt to you at the time? And you just, back of your head, you're thinking, but I'll keep looking for some water here.
0: <laughs> exactly. Right. And, and frankly, I got cold feet. I thought, you know, as much as I love this, the ocean thing, and I really want to figure out how to connect these things. I hadn't really, I hadn't really connected those dots quite yet. And so I, I really kind of Gave in to some of the pressure I was feeling from my family and close friends and mentors who said, look, you know, if you think this you're interested in this molecular biology thing and you should really focus on that. Go into biomedical diagnostics. You can have a great career.
1: Take the safe bet.
0: Yeah, just just do it. And so I enrolled in a Ph.D. program at Duke University. Mm. And I have to tell you, going from Santa Barbara California to Durham, North Carolina was <laughs> another whiplash. <laughs> was a real culture shock. <laughs>
1: I mean, Columbia, Missouri to Santa Barbara to Durham, North Carolina are you know Earth to Venus to Mars.
0: <laughs> That's right, and um, it was uh, yeah. And interestingly, on the very first day when the my class of students was convening to meet the faculty, I'd never never been there even. I'd never even set foot on the campus. I just was showed up. And I, now I've got to go and meet these people. And um, I was dressed in my best California summer wear, you know, including slip <laughs> on checkered tennis shoes, <laughs> which my son now wears every day. Anyway, I but so I walk into this room and most of the faculty were had white lab coats because um, they're all medical. They're all mostly medical oh, right. types. And m- most of the, my fellow students were in an MD, PhD program. So, they're getting dual degrees in medicine and some kind of biomedical type research. And when I walked in, it, it just the room went quiet and someone said, you must be the guy from California. <laughs> and I said, well, <laughs> actually, I'm from Missouri, you know, and, and that's kind of what uh, what started me off there. It was a great learning experience and it was a wonderful group of people. But I realized it wasn't that fulfilling. You know, I was doing cancer research. It was meaningful work. And so, but I just had this deeply felt longing, like I'm just, it wasn't satisfying. You know, there was something missing. So, I started writing letters. And again, no, there was no internet really in those days or no searching.
1: Duke has a marine lab. Did you... They cotton onto the marine lab, I, and maybe they weren't doing anything in this arena back then. But
0: oh, well, no, they were, and this is where I picked up this phrase don't take it negatively, but it was called grind and find. I see some organism, you grind it up and separate its parts, and what can you tell me about it? You know, <laughs> and it was being used in the search for natural products, you know, uh, which was quite laudable if you think about that. It was being used in aquaculture, really, you know, looking for traits of certain things. And it was being used uh, as a way to create diagnostics, maybe, say, for a harmful organism, something that was a public health concern. How could we use, just like we test for COVID, for example, how could we do something equivalent to look for bad things in the environment or good things?
1: Like red tides or harmful algal blooms that can foul a water system, things like that.
0: Exactly. So I started writing letters. And explaining, you know, what my interest was in bringing the ocean science and this kind of technology together. And I was looking for a way to to leave Duke and go on to another another university. Who would you
1: write to? How would you pick who to write to?
0: Well, I reached out to like University of Washington, Seattle, Scripps, uh, down in San Diego. Um, I knew people, of course, in Santa Barbara. Florida, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. I just started writing letters. And interestingly, somehow, I don't know why, I also wrote to someone in the University of Idaho or something. I don't even remember the name of the school. Very few people got back to me except for just a few. And um, one person told me, reading my letter, I got this wonderful heartfelt letter back from from a person saying, it seems to me like you want to be an engineer, my advice is go come to my school, get a degree as an engineer, and then go back into ocean science. And I thought, well, I can't do another undergrad degree. <laughs> this is just like, two, two, I mean, at that point, I was I was making my living wage sort of as being a graduate student. I was, I was on my own financially. I had to deal with that.
1: A very, very meager living wage, it must be said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
0: that, that's right. It's not a glamorous life. Another person, when I listened to what they did, I used that phrase, grind and fine. They found it very offensive and that ended that relationship pretty quickly. But then I got a very warm reception at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, in particular, a person by the name of Don Anderson, who's still there, senior scientist, a very famous guy. And Don studied harmful toxic algae and his background. He'd gotten a Ph.D. actually at uh, at M.I.T., and he had discovered through his course of study that this particular harmful algae formed a kind of resting stage, kind of like a seed. Because where where do these things go, it's like they're yeah. there, and and then all of a sudden they disappear, and then they yeah. come out of nowhere. Like where? How does this work? And he he got interested in that, and that took him to to Woods Hole, as this who he is. They say Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. He went there and started a, a laboratory dedicated to looking at this particular kind of harmful algae. Well, it turns out, which is true of other things in nature, you have lookalikes. And so if you just look at some of these, these are microscopic algae, you can barely see them with your naked eye, just a little thing. But if you put them under a microscope and you have two things could be right next to each other, one could be actually potentially toxic and harmful. The other one's completely benign and great for the environment. How do we tell them apart? And there was a lot of arguments. Classical taxonomy of these kinds of organisms is based on your morphology, looking at very minute details of, you know, where's the little spike thingy here. I or there. tell
1: what you are by the shape you <laughs> have, basically. Right, right, right.
0: It's purely by I'm just looking from from the outside onto you. So this my opportunity that Don saw was to look from the inside out. You know, what does what would their DNA tell us and an important discovery had been made that you could look at a particular genetic a particular gene that's a shared essentially by all life, with the exception of some viruses, ribosomal genes. So these are the these are part of the scaffolding that is the machinery that makes proteins in all cells. Again, viruses exception, they're, they're weird. And so if you if you decode the sequence of this gene, it turned out there are parts that are very, very conserved. We share the same Every, kind of
1: everybody's got them. Yep.
0: Us and E. coli, you know, we obviously have the same roots. But then there's stuff that's completely unique. Um, and now we might think of that even in the forensics world, you know, DNA science to identify people. OK, but in those days, could I just tell two bugs apart that look alike? And that's kind of what set me on this on the use of molecular biology, but it was in an ocean setting. Yeah. Although, much to my surprise, that was going to be a lot of lab work with things that were growing in culture. And uh, what I wanted to do was get out on the boats. Go out, and out, go to, out see. to sea. <laughs> you know, and where's that adventure, right? But but it, it's a step closer. <laughs> it was one step closer, and what I realized with uh, one of my very good friends, Peter Franks, who's at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Peter was really looking more at the physics and ke- physical oceanography and how it currents work and so forth in relation to how these particular algal blooms, harmful algal blooms I- evolve and are transported.
1: Because those guys are not swimmers. They're getting moved around by waves and tides and currents, right?
0: They, they swim, but it's you know, like yeah. that much. Well, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, because of my association with the lab and my friendship with Peter, uh, they're always looking for people to go out and help. At sea, I got to go with him. And so uh, we show up at the dock. I'm ready for the big, glistening, you know, marine (laughs) research vessel. And it's an old, kind of dilapidated, kind of converted fishing vessel that's (laughs) clearly past its lifespan. (laughs) And, you know, it took us all day to go out and just get a few buckets of water. And to come back. (laughs) Calypso, it is not. (laughs) But here's the thing. When Peter got back to shore, he would know immediately what was happening with the water column. He just, very simple instruments that tell you about temperature and salinity and things like this, chlorophyll. And he could tell you all kinds of things that's happening and draw a section of how water's moving. I, on, on the other hand, had to go back to the lab with my vials of 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 (laughs) water. And then I sat behind a microscope counting how many cells could I identify. Uh, This is not the role
1: I wanted to be cast in. (laughs) Right,
0: right. So microscopy was really the only tool that we had to try to put a number on where it's kind of like, where's Waldo and how many. And so in the course of that, I started thinking, okay, there's got to be a way to take that, those molecular signatures that those literally kind of like a way to identify A from B. How could we use that as a, as a diagnostic, just like we do COVID is another great example. So um, so that's where I, I met some influential people in the microbiology world who had learned how to do this kind of trick where you could um, actually stain a cell, make it turn a color under a microscope by having a, a sequence of synthetic DNA that would bind to its complement inside the cell and make it shine, and so under a microscope, it would just be like a flash of light. You know? So, be like- if,
1: if you're George, you will light up green when I put this on you, and if you're Ralph, you won't, or you'll be a different color. So I can or right be away red. tell, or yes. you be red. So I can right away tell Ralph from George and Susie just visually. I don't have to pull a piece of DNA out of each one of them.
0: Exactly, and okay. I also I can also do them in in parallel. I can have one sample and see both colors. Yeah, we literally did exactly that. And so this was a big step forward. You know, suddenly now we have a way to speed up the detection and, and quantification of these of these things that cause real harm.
1: And you could even probably do that at sea, which well, Chris Skolan, which Chris Skolin was gonna like a lot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you can. It is brutal. You want to sit behind a microscope on a rolling boat. I tell you, if you want to get sick, that's a great way to do it. <laughs> I mean, it was like, and I'm not, I'm not kidding, you know. Most of the most people who go to see find that it, it you will your inner the fish. ear is telling you you're
1: moving around <laughs> and your eyes are telling you a steady scene in front of you and that when those two signals disagree your stomach becomes not happy
0: yeah that's right that's right and so therein lies the how I got to Mbari and what sort of really changed. so wait
1: did you did you finish your graduate degree at Duke or did you transfer to MIT
0: I transferred to MIT
1: okay MIT of course is a powerful, fantastic land-based school in Boston, but it's got a, a joint venture, a handshake with Woods Hole, because Woods Hole Woods Hole's life started as a marine biology lab back in the 30s, and it's technically just a lab and a research institute. It doesn't have degree granting capabilities. So they made a deal. We can have students that will come and work with us at Woods Hole and do this kind of work, access to our ships, and they're a super technology shop doing robotics and submersibles. But you guys will give them the diploma.
0: Right. And while I was at Duke in search of my next adventure, you know, where I was going to put these things together, it was my brother-in-law, actually, who had been working, he's an engineer, was working in the oil and gas industry, decided he didn't want to do that anymore, was going to. Uh, a place called MIT that had a joint education program with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, HUI, so the MIT-HUI joint program, and they had a variety of programs in physical oceanography and in engineering and in biology, biological oceanography. And as I was sort of sitting there somewhat frustrated by my search and they were on their way, they were literally moving from Texas going to Boston he said, you know, you should just go to the joint program. And and I had remembered that this is one of the persons had, had reached out to me and was encouraging me. So, that's really kind of how I, I made that connection from Duke. And so, I left Duke on great terms with a master's degree and went off and started this PhD program under the MIT Hui uh, banner.
1: So, I want to fast forward a little bit because, I mean, I, I love your pathway story. It's it's a fabulous example of exploring. Trying to explore, find, discover, and serendipity like your brother-in-law happening to mention. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, by the way, follow me. You make your way to Mbari as a postdoc, postdoctoral fellow, and over the years, despite your professed intention to never become a director, you keep A, you stay a long a long time. And that's a bit unusual in a scientific career. Now you've got this perch that lets you see so many dimensions of the engineering and the science of ocean science. So in a nutshell, for people who are listening who only know the acronym and know how we have decoded it, what sets MBARI apart from a Woods Hole or a Scripps or one university, any one of the other top flight oceanographic institutions?
0: Well, I think it was really the founder, David Packard, who saw an opportunity to create an institution that didn't exist in his mind anywhere else. And that was going to be an organization that would be grounded on sort of three pillars, if you will. One, science, another engineering, and a third, accessing the ocean, you know, essentially marine operations, if you will. And then, of course, there are supporting all that or all the other functions, education, outreach, you know, things that come into that. But foundationally, the, the focus point, the starting point was science, engineering, marine operations.
1: How's that different from a Scripps or a University of Washington?
0: At first blush, it's not. But what differed in David Packard's eye was that we were not going to be encumbered by what had necessarily been done in the past or was sort of a status quo, we were going to endeavor to do something entirely different and take huge risks. So, for example, in the days when Mr. Packard, this is in the early 80s, is thinking about this, if you wanted to be a real top-notch oceanographic institution, you had a submarine that people got in and went underwater in in a crude submersible. And that was the pinnacle. So when he would ask uh, leading scientists around the world, hey, what do you think would be the best thing to do? The answer was always, well, you got, if you want to be world famous, you got to get a submarine.
1: And we're talking a, a deep diving submersible that can go- deep
0: sea. How do you Thousands of feet deep. Right, right. Miles. <laughs> so, yeah. and so, but you know, but David Packard being David Packard, he also had, of course, having served in government and had an association with the Navy, Understood that there were other technologies that didn't require putting a human underwater and which can be a, a pretty serious undertaking, obviously, very could be potentially dangerous. And
1: and it and it's expensive and slow.
0: Right. So he had an insight which at the time didn't exist at these other institutions you mentioned, which was what about a remotely operated robot? And David, Mr. Packard had a wonderful way of breaking things down into what is the problem you're trying to solve? What are the options for doing it? You know, so let's gain the solution space. And then given the end-to-end thing of what we're trying to accomplish, have a solution that meets all of our core requirements, you know, from end-to-end. And the fundamental requirement that was, was being attempted was how do we access the deep ocean? And his answer to that, after some iteration with people around him, was using robots and remotely operated technology, because we'll be there more often and longer, it'll be safer, and it's a lot less expensive than a crude submersible.
1: This, by the way, is David Packard, just to put a fine point on it, co-inventor and founder of Hewlett Packard. So this this is a man who's had bold, laterally thought ideas before.
0: (laughs) That's right. Yes. You know, in today's speak, you could say grandfather of Silicon Valley. Yeah. So he was really among these pioneers who really, you know, built his company around this idea of teamwork, peer relationships. It's a community of people who are all working together. And, you know, just like you, Kathy, having been in the space program, you know, you might be in that capsule and taking the spacewalk. But you don't do that without that entire group of people and they're all all deserving of great respect and admiration. And so that's exactly how Mr. Packard felt like he, he wanted to approach ocean exploration was we're going to do it through a technological lens and we're going to really push the envelope. At the time, no one was really using remotely operated vehicles as they're called, things with a long tether to a robot at the bottom to, to do any kind of ocean science.
1: No, the I mean, the oil in the oil field, they were starting to be used for operating valves and things in the big seabed right. insulation. So there was a pretty sophisticated body of practice. But, like you said, scientists were locked into I've got nets and water sampling bottles and scuba gear and submarines, and that's how I get the data that lets me understand the ocean
0: right. and one of one of Mr. Packer's passions, one of the things he said, was I want you to bring back data, not samples. How how are you going to make the measurement in the water? When I was in search then of postdoctoral opportunities coming out of Woods Hole, you know, a lot of people thought, well, you know, you go to one of those great big um, oceanographic institutions, become a professor, you know, kind of take a tenure track route. Ambari was just a startup enterprise in those days. Very small, handful of people, tiny boat, this one remotely operated vehicle. We had two labs, one wet, one dry, (laughs) one where we could use water and one was electronics. It was a completely, you know, different uh, scene than we have today. And what was interesting to me when I described what I wanted to do, uh, the folks at MBARI were incredibly receptive. They were like, this is perfect. You know, how do you actually automate the detection of some of these things with robotics and at sea, but using molecular biology, like how would that work? And they found it fascinating. So that's how I got my postdoctoral appointment there. And I was told, by the way, you know, uh, many of my mentors suggested if I went there, it was a, it was a dead end. It's it's career killer. You're going to chase this pipe dream. It's never going to work. Do safe science. And I think that's where Dave Packer encouraged us to do something that if we weren't failing, we weren't trying hard enough. That was his, his idea. And so one day I I was sitting there in the laboratory and I'd come up with this idea of how a mechanism, a device that could do this, collect a water sample, apply a kind of chemistry, get a a signal and have that come back to shore without actually having anybody touch it and just get data and not the sample. And And people thought I was crazy, literally, but... But Mr. Packard came and sat down next to me and he, as he would sometimes do, he would just show up and he wanted to see my lab book and he wanted to know what I was working on. And I described the entire thing end to end and he kind of thought about it and he said, you know, it's going to work. But what you have to do is figure out the hardest step in that whole chain from end to end. And if you don't solve the hardest thing, you'll never, the rest of it doesn't matter. So just don't do anything. Just focus on that one thing that's going to make you fail.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a a triage thing, right? uh, First of all, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is if this doesn't work, none of it works.
0: Yeah. Well, what's the point? You know, all that other stuff, who cares, you know? So, I realized that the whole thing hinged on this chemistry. And that chemistry turned out to be essentially what was happening in the biomedical diagnostics world. How do you go in a clinical setting? they take a, a sample and hey, in 15 minutes, they tell you, you know, what you're infected with or what whatever, and then prescribe a medication. So, there's no delay in lab testing and all this stuff. It's very rapid. Yeah, on the spot diagnostics. And so, I discovered that, you know, this could be applied and automated. And so, I just started working at that. And, you know, over the years, we built these machines and, you know, people thought I was crazy. Then we figured, we actually proved we could do it. And, you know, it's an ongoing thing. We've been doing it for thirty years, and we're not there entirely, but it does work. And so, along that way, I, I had was working very, very closely with engineers. So I had never was told I essentially would only be there a couple of years. I needed to find a job and move on. But MBARI was expanding, and uh, Mr. Packard really wanted to kind of double down on on his ideas. He saw that it was bearing fruit, and so I was I was offered an opportunity to stay. It was really remarkable, and in considering how job searches are done, usually, in my case, it was essentially a question of would I be interested in staying, and if so, I got a handshake and a pledge that they would do everything in their power yeah. to make me successful. That was it. You know, it was no.
1: <laughs> well, you can't, But you can't beat that. And you know, the other thing, probably worth pointing out, it's been you know, background every time you say Mr. Packard. If you had gone to one of those other places. Your life is a cycle of writing grants in which you explain to some government agency or somebody, this is the work I think would be worth doing, and here's, here's how far I can see. Here's, it's not, it tends to not be very visionary because they're looking for a proposal that lays out steps that are pretty certain to get you to that next milestone. David Packard was large substantially at the early days, and still quite substantially, funding the vision himself. So he was able to make the kind of bets that you're talking about, bet on a person, bet on a vision that was further off in, in the arena, You know, not even sure yet you could grab it. But with his sense of vision, the ability to recognize, if you can grab this, it's going to have a huge good impact. So let's go try to grab that puppy.
0: That's right. But, you know, as I used to say, people... It's a real privilege and it's an opportunity, but it's not a given that, you know, you get to do whatever you want, whatever you want for all no. time. You have to at some point you deliver. And sometimes delivering is is a mistake that actually opens up a new a new avenue, an important discovery that we never intended, and that was a that was a trick at Hewlett Packard Corporation when they would try to do something and it didn't work out. But sometimes those things that didn't work out became yeah. some of their biggest products. So
1: why it didn't work out would sometimes lead to something right. you hadn't begun to know to aim at.
0: Right, right. I have to say I lost a lot of sleep in those days. It was really challenging. I worked very hard. The tide of popular opinion about whether it was even even feasible was really against me, and and. um And I just had to sort of kept, you know, stand my ground and keep trying my best and proving it could work. And I think it was really through doing that, I was working very closely with the engineers, very closely with the Marine operations people. And there was an opportunity uh, when my predecessor, Marsha McNutt, needed someone to take on the chair role of the science division. And I was rather young for that role. But she thought it was interesting, I think, and maybe somewhat disruptive to appoint me in that mm-hmm. position when I would be overseeing these very senior scientists who um, had very strong opinions about what Ambari should do or not do, whatever.
1: He could be a very different kind of catalyst.
0: And it also a gauntlet for me, frankly. Yeah. Marsh is a wonderful person. I consider her a friend and a great mentor. Brilliant scientists, and for your listeners currently, you know the president of the National Academies. I mean, she's really yes. meteoric rise. <laughs> she's a wizard. Just, she is amazing, and,
1: and, and an avid cowgirl,
0: yeah, horseback and a, rider, right, ro- horseback yeah,
1: rider, rodeo mama.
0: Yes, right, and a Midwesterner from yeah. uh, Minnesota. I think. Anyway, she she gave me this opportunity and um, it was was sort of mine to make or break. And I just, I really was inspired by her giving me the chance. And I just applied myself. You know, suddenly I found I really needed to be prepared. We have periodic external reviews. There's no tenure at MBARI. I was coming up for review. I felt like I needed to get back to the science, you know, just to kind of check the boxes as you would as an academician of things I was doing. And and so I asked to step down from my chair uh, role. A few months after that is when President Obama uh, nominated Marsha to become the first director or first woman director of the uh, United States Geological Survey. And it was a huge honor for her and it was a great move. And of course, she was going to take it. And then the question was for the board of directors, well, what are we going to do? <laughs> and um they knew me and uh, they had there were a number of other candidates i think that they considered but a lot like marsha you know they for some reason i don't really know why they they took a chance and they just said you know why we'll give this guy a shot and there's no contract
1: yeah if it doesn't work we say goodbye it's all good right yeah.
0: it's so it's yeah. you know it, so i took the job i you know i said okay i'll give it a shot and once again, I felt like, you know, this was sort of, I was pretty young for it in those days. I, I guess I was maybe 50, yeah, maybe even a little younger (laughs) and it was a little young, but you know, but you know, they, they gave me the shot. And then I just working with the board, one thing led to another. And, and now I've been in that role for 14 years and it's, it's been a blur, frankly.
1: Yeah. So I want to shift gears a little bit in our final couple of minutes and come back to something that we touched on really right at the outset that, you know, we hear so much today about how the world is awash in data and probably easy to think, well, then surely we must know an awful lot, you know, everything we could possibly need to know about the ocean. On the other hand, you'll hear people say, I've been known to say this myself, yeah, but we know the seafloor of the ocean vastly less well than we know the surface of the moon or Mars. So it you know, there's this schism if it's as it were, between how much do we know about the ocean, why does it matter? What are the big gaps? Why would it be important to fill them? And I'd like to hear you talk about that a little bit and and then I have one final question for you about a still pretty novel technique that I know you guys are very involved in at Mabari, called eDNA, environmental DNA. Mm-hmm. So give me your take on what are the biggest gaps in understanding our ocean? Why do they matter? Then you can give us the little thumbnail tutorial on what is this eDNA stuff?
0: <laughs> okay. Well, it's you know, fascinating. You mentioned seafloor mapping. And, you know, I think only about 30% of the seafloor of the entire earth has been mapped in any detail to say kilometer resolution, which is when you think about the scale that biology operates on, it's on the centimeter scale. So we, we really have a very, very poor understanding of everything that's down there. As you move from the seafloor and into the water column, there are all kinds of life forms that are completely unknown to science. And in Bari's time alone, we've discovered over 200 animals that are completely novel. No one ever knew they existed.
1: Well, because before we only knew them if somebody spotted them.
0: Right. You have to see it. And and then how do you learn about what it does? And then as we move, get to that ocean atmosphere uh, interface, of course, climate change, this is happening. The ocean is our biggest protectorate when it comes to the impacts of burning fossil fuels. It's absorbing the excess CO2 we're putting in the atmosphere. It's absorbing the heat that's being generated because of those greenhouse gases. And so there's huge questions about, well, what does that all mean for the trajectory of the ocean and its its own health? And so the bottom line is we know a lot, but there is an unbelievable amount we don't know. So something like maybe 40% of the carbon that we're emitting that's going in the atmosphere, we're not really sure where it goes. We know that if we were to reforest the the Earth to the best of our ability, the terrestrial Earth, it still would not be enough to offset the em- enormous amount of carbon that's going to continue, that's already in the atmosphere and will continue to get there. So, the ocean really is the frontier, and it is literally the heart blood of our existence, all life on Earth. No matter where you live, it's tied to the sea. And so that's really what I think is so incredible about this. Um, not only just learning about these weird things, what I call the weird and wonderful, <laughs> just <laughs> stra- the strangest thing. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Like, but also because, you know, the future of humanity really depends on our, our stewardship of the sea. It's our life support system. It, it is. And I, you might know John Delaney, a famous uh, mm-hmm. marine geologist. And he was famous once for saying, if we were all on a spaceship, and we thought our life support system was failing. We'd be on that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, and then he said, guess what, folks? We are. It's called Earth and we better get on it.
1: And I can promise you, I would not have buttoned up my spacesuit if I didn't understand every single aspect of how my life support system was built and worked. But merrily, we tick along on this planet with still huge gaps in what we understand and know about it. How does this thing really work? And is it still working well?
0: Yeah. So that, you know, it brings us back to the Ambari enterprise. And I think a lot of modern ocean sciences, its practice today is the scale of these problems is enormous. You know, if you think about mapping the seafloor to say meter scale resolution, uh, knowing everything that's living in the ocean and how it's distributed and who feeds who, and you know, that kind of a thing, you know, some of these iconic things we look to like a tuna, which is beautiful and a commodity but it's actually eating things that are these weird, wonderful things that move up and down in the water column and so forth. So so how do we actually get a grip on all of that? And really, the answer is obviously through our exploration and discovery. But when you come back to David Packard's admonishment about what's the problem you're trying to solve and that end to end, clearly we need to be able to observe the ocean on a scale that is not possible to achieve by human a human presence alone ships are important submarines that have people in them are important but it's really robots that have to to come to the fore because we won't make it by ourselves
1: yeah they can't scale
0: that's right it doesn't scale and so yeah. how do we create a scalable technology that is can be highly distributed pro- provide these kind of Simultaneous measurements. I like to think of it like weather. We have weather stations all over the place. They feed information to computer models, which then project out forecasts that are pretty accurate. And you get on your phone or wherever, yeah. a newspaper,
1: and, uh, fingertips,
0: and anyone can interpret. But that's it, right? that's
1: billions and billions and you know, many 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 billions of data points every day all over the globe to make weather forecasts. We have nothing like that coverage in time and space of the ocean at all.
0: Not even close. Not even close. And and so, therein lies both the opportunity and the challenge. And so, you know, as we kind of whittle down and say, okay, these are big problems. We can't, we're never going to do it all. But there are some things we can do that are going to make a difference or could make a difference. And, and, um, and so, one of those, in addition, we do seafloor mapping stuff and, you know, looking at those carbon fluxes, of course, that's really important. But you asked about environmental DNA. And so here's the challenge. It turns out we're pretty good at doing basic ocean chemistry physics can be done on a, on a ocean basin scale with robots pretty effectively. And it can feed models uh, that help us understand the flux of carbon, for example, basic kind of almost like life signs, you know, what's your pulse mm-hmm. and how much oxygen do you have in your blood those kind of level things. But when it comes to actually observing biology in the ocean, we have no good way to do it that people will use an optical like cameras like we've used for years. Maybe you can use an acoustic source to listen or to actively ping and get reflections and you see scattering.
1: But that's like staring at one webcam somewhere on the planet and taking the chance that you see a deer or a rabbit or a human. Right. its If they walk through, you say, oh, there is one. They live on this planet. But you don't know how many they are. You don't know where they roam. You right. just know you saw one.
0: Right. And so interestingly, because of just talking about optics and, and acoustics, those are things that can start to be pretty highly distributed. Now the question is, what do you do with the data, the information? and no human can sit there and look through the video and count how many deer like you say or fish or what have and let alone tell you what species it is or whatever. So that's being done by computers, by machine learning, AI kind of technology. So now you've got data going into something which very quickly can be turned into quantitative actionable information. Now we still have this problem on in when it comes to biology in comprehensively we really until recently had no way to survey an area comprehensively for who's living there. And that, it turns out, coming back to our, our where we started this conversation with biomedical diagnostics and forensics, <laughs> CSI.
1: CSI for the oceans.
0: These, all of us, as we move through the environment, every living thing, as we're moving around, we're leaving little traces of ourselves everywhere.
1: Little bits of DNA.
0: DNA, a little bit of skin, maybe a hair. Okay. Waste material, we're everywhere. And if we go into a room and it was sterile and we leave, forensics team could go in there and figure out a lot about who was in that room even without ever seeing us or knowing anything about us.
1: And we can do that in the ocean now?
0: And now we have learned that we can do it in the ocean. And it's a pretty remarkable leap. Once again, I go back to some young graduate students who came to me with this idea. You know, it had been practiced, people knew about environmental DNA if you took a sample of water, you could find, for example, invasive carp in freshwater systems. It was very controversial because I don't see the fish, but you say, but their DNA is here. This We're talking a,
1: a soda can worth of water,
0: a thimbleful. Take a gallon or even half a gallon of water, something okay. like that. And it can even, sometimes it's a small volume too, but you just take a little yeah. bit. Fill a couple
1: of water bottles and... Yeah. Yep.
0: So it was working in some really narrow use cases in freshwater it was being used in soil to look kind of retrospectively, for example, in the Arctic. Uh, I can find mammoth DNA at a time when we think the wow. mammoths were extinct. But hey, guess what? Their DNA, they must have been there. So so these graduate students, um, they, if they were from Stanford, they said, let us we want to do this in the ocean. And one of the uh, funders of this was actually the Packard Foundation was separately. So they brought them to Ambari and, and we sat around just brainstorming, well, what would you do? And uh, they had all these great ideas, we're going to go off scuba diving and we'll collect water by the fish or whatever. And I thought, you know, why not? Why not go to the Monterey Bay Aquarium? Because here you have an ocean right there, <laughs> you know, saltwater
1: you know, tanks and you know who's in it.
0: <laughs> you know, everybody that's in it and you know what water comes in and what water goes out. So just take a sample and you'll and see if it works. And it did. It wow. was remarkable. And they actually found out that there was one other thing beside everything that was living in the tank. And that was some of the fish that were being used to feed the animals. Oh, uh, wow. The carnivores yeah. in the tank. <laughs> yeah. But I've,
1: I've been there for a feeding on the big tank and yeah, they throw however, however many pounds of fish at the top of that tank. Right. And I mean, the upper 10 feet of that tank just turns a froth as the tuna and everybody mill around.
0: It's it's remarkable.
1: It sure looked to me like no bit of protein made it to the bottom of that tank. <laughs> not
0: not much. Um yeah. and so, you know, this was a really remarkable kind of moment because it suddenly it 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 was a revolution happening all over, really many groups were looking at can we do this in the environment? But it really showed that this was a had real potential to be the only thing comprehensive way of surveying for biology from from bacteria to whales, just by taking a sample of water and concentrating the DNA and sequencing it. And then using, you have to use computers to decode all that information to turn it into, into some kind of quantitative, uh, actionable data. It was pretty remarkable.
1: That is really fabulous. The final point I want to touch on with you, I think you just laid the groundwork for brilliantly because just like in your own experience, you thought, I want to do ocean science. And as you kept exploring your way forward, you discovered there were a lot of other avenues, a lot of other tools that could be your pathway to ocean science. It didn't have to be take an oceanography major. And you know, your description, just that little bit, you just laid out of eDNA. You know, there's computer programming, there's You don't hire all PhDs at Mabari, right? I mean, it takes a lot of people that are just playing good with their hands at smart engineering, knowledge, assembling and building and maintaining things to enable what you guys do. So I'm curious what your top three points of advice are to young people who talk to you who've got some glimmer in their eye about the oceans. Maybe they saw an old episode of Jacques Cousteau.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well... Usually, when they come, they you know they already have some passion for the ocean and an inkling that it's important. But in case they don't know that, I like to remind them, you know, the age of exploration and discovery is alive and well. And it's not just academic for the books kind of stuff. This has got real application that will is world changing and it's important for humanity. I think a lot of people that I talk to young people, they want to make a difference. They don't want to just go and, you know, write academic papers that sit in some journal. They really want to have an impact. And in fact, that's even more important than the academic kind of what you might think of as academia. So, that's the first piece is there's lots that can be done. And as you say, to do that, it takes a village. This is not a job you do alone in a laboratory. You really need to be able to connect with a whole variety of disciplines. There's going to be engineering, and that's going to be on hardware on software electrical how do we connect these systems to just facilitate uh, an is kind of function and then there of course is the science piece in in helping to drive some of these questions and it's that it's that yin and yang the back and forth of of that interplay where these new ideas and new solutions, like environmental, they they emerge. Now we know it works. How do you scale it up? No one's going to do that by themselves. It's going to be a whole plethora of people. So there's there's enormous opportunity. This is a multi-billion-dollar, probably trillion-dollar industry that's happening globally. And there's ways to participate in for-profit. There's ways to participate in nonprofit. There's ways to be involved just from an educational uh, or outreach perspective. And all of those are are critical and it doesn't mean you have to necessarily get on a boat and go to sea. So for some individuals who may have an ex- accessibility, it's just not something that physically they're capable of getting on a boat and doing, they can still play an equally if not more important role on the beach and working, you know, working these things, developing these systems. So interestingly, I think more than ever now, ocean the ocean science kind of enterprise, we're sort of kind of talking science in general has been is the most accessible it's ever been because there are so many ways to connect to it and i think we've also realized just as david packard taught us all those years ago we're stronger when you bring in different perspectives different voices different life experiences that's really what makes us think and come up be more creative you know is to coming together and not get siloed you know not sort of stick with the status quo but you need these disruptions to kind of bring in a new idea. And that's exactly what we're trying to trying to practice. And you, thanks, Kathy, you've helped reinvigorate us you know, <laughs> along those lines and with your last visit to MBARI. So we're doing exactly that, you know.
1: So, so I guess the the punchline is let in that wacky kid from California with the checkered sneakers.
0: <laughs> well, from Missouri, you know, right? Needed badly, needed a haircut and a, and a new wardrobe, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, well,
1: Chris. It's it's always great talking to you, and you've done a great job, I think, of capturing the. The excitement and the, the sense of, I mean, real community culture at Mubari. I mean, the guys that are bending metal to make the device are hand in glove and side by side with the pointy-headed scientists and the the computer nerds. And it's just it's wonderful to feel and see that chemistry happening as vibrantly as it does at your place. So let me know when you'd exceed another lab review or fly by <laughs> visit. I'll happily hop on a plane and be out there in a heartbeat.
0: Oh, you're always welcome. You're always welcome. And uh, you know, you're not that far from where you got your start out here at UC <laughs> Santa Cruz. So yeah, you know, hopefully it's like you know, it's old home week if you could come back. But well, thank you so much, Kathy. Thanks for everything that you do and for being such an inspiration to so many people. I was among those who watched as you took your fateful spacewalks. I was a big fan and uh it was just phenomenal. So thanks for being such a great mentor and, and such an inspiration to everyone.
1: Well, thank you. You're very, very welcome. And hopefully with this conversation, we're both paying some of that inspiration forward to a next generation.
0: And I hope so. There sure is uh, there's a whole world out there waiting. It's just, you just got to go get it.
1: Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to com.